Welcome to The Way Home with Laura Smith, the show that brings you wonderful guests, helpful advice, and uplifting stories. The Way Home, live inspired. Here's your host, Laura Smith. Well, I hope all of you have enjoyed a wonderful Thanksgiving holiday, long weekend, hopefully, uh, four days or so. And I hope that you enjoy the upcoming program with the most thoughtful guests and people that um, truly, I think, have messages of hope, redemption, forgiveness, you name it, plus some other great things to do this holiday season in terms of giving, because, you know, Giving Tuesday is just two days away. My first guest is a man by the name of Ken Guidros. He has written a beautiful book called Letters to My Son in Prison, How a Father and Son Found Forgiveness for an Unforgivable Crime. It's absolutely beautifully written and, again, talks about the process of everything that happens um, when the worst types of tragedies happen in our lives and the way we come out of the darkness through redemption and forgiveness. We're also going to be speaking with the president and CEO of Public Welfare uh, Foundation, which is Candace Jones. And she has a great foundation that helps other uh, projects get people who have been incarcerated out into new jobs and in hopefully brand new steps towards a positive life. And then Kenneth Hodder is here. He is the Salvation Army Commissioner on high to the whole United States of the Salvation Army. What an amazing man. And, you know, it's that season. Wherever you go shopping now, and you probably already saw the red kettles out there, tis the season to give. But boy, have things changed for the Salvation Army. It's not only just putting little dollar bills and change into the beautiful red kettles, but you can give digitally in a 100 Ways to Sunday. That's all coming up on this inspirational program the Way Home with Laura Smith that I know you're going to enjoy. And we'll be right back after this with Ken Guidros with Letters to My Son in Prison. We'll be right back. You're listening to The Way Home. Welcome back. You're listening to The Way Home with Laura Smith. Here's Laura. I get to talk to some of the most fascinating people and some of the best authors around. And for that, I'm so grateful for this program. Now with its 199th episode, perhaps, or 98th, we're getting close to the 200 mark after four years of The Way Home. And it's uh, part of my work is is interviewing people who have written compelling works. And today is no exception. And I'm hoping that you will derive as much as I'm getting from this incredible book that is so openly personal and raw, but yet so real and full of love. It is by a gentleman by the name of Ken Guidros, who has written before, but this particular book, Letters to My Son in Prison, How a Father and Son Found Forgiveness for an Unforgivable Crime, just came out in September and is chock full of things that will make you think forever and help you. And I think serve as, as guidance in many ways. Not sure if you planned that, Ken, but that's what's happened as I'm reading your book. It's really serving me in terms of it with my own situations, with my, with my relationship with my daughter. And so thank you for writing it. Thank you for being here. Absolutely. And yeah, you're right. I didn't quite expect the, uh, the impact and, uh, when you write something and you're so, it, 
involved in it and it's so close to you. It's it's just hard to, to envision how it's going to touch others, but it's been absolutely incredible to see the lives it's touching. Did you do this as a cathartic way of, you know, just kind of helping to heal your situation within your family, hoping that by writing it, or did you expressly want to help people maybe who are dealing with things that you think that you can't get through? It was a little bit of both. Um, and, and, and both kind of just evolved. As you can imagine, writing to my son initially was, was for me and him, right? That was a way to connect. That was a way, almost a desperate attempt to reach a son that had, had just been distant for so long. Uh, really 10, in some ways, 14 years. That's a long time for a 30, you know, an almost 30 year old. It's almost half his life. And so, that was just between me and him. But as it evolved, as he started to change, as even I started to change, and even the act of writing started to to change me and help me understand my life a little better as a dad and some of my own feelings, even towards God. You know what I mean? That all just sort of evolved and almost snowballed. And then, and it took years. Of course, he was in prison for a while. And then even after that, I was still writing. And so as, as it, it neared the end, yes, I started to, to, to realize, you know what? This, this might help other people. So this may really be, um, if you will, a ministry, a, a mm-hmm. way of, of helping other people. It's incredibly generous of you because I'm sure it's not easy to have such personal things, especially when there's, you know, they touched your life in such a negative way. And of course, the person, um, whose lives it affected, you know, why your son went to prison. And we'll talk about the whole premise of the book in a moment. But it is interesting that you were a pastor of a church for part of your career. And then you've written before, but they were financial things and you were in sales. And you did you had this really interesting, disparate career of all these different things. But um, can do you think that being a pastor at one point and having a, a very strong church life, did that lend itself to part of what happened in here? Because I know that you sort of went more from religion into a space of spiritual connection and expression of just all that you believe in, and you're still growing in it, it sounds like. Tell us about that that journey, because the part of you that is a pastor, I would imagine this makes it even made the whole situation even more difficult than maybe just with someone else. It did, because when my sons rebelled and when everything started to spin out of control, I was actually a pastor right here where we live now, Santa Clarita, California. And so you have this church, um, a lot of families, a lot of young people like my sons. And then all of a sudden, the, the leaders, sons and family just starts to spin out of control. So sure, there there was an, an element of I hate to use the word because it kind of sounds egotistical, but embarrassment, right? Mm-hmm. I felt like, uh, you know, here I am supposed to be an example, and, and I'm a, a good example of a failure is about all I'm an example of <laughs> as things really started to spin. So, you know, was that – I mean, there was certainly a part of of being spiritual and being Christian that was helpful, but it was almost more negative because of some of the shame I felt and even – and it wasn't even like people begrudged me or, or judged me that church kicked me out. You know, it wasn't even that, that, that is not, it was how I felt as a dad and as a Christian dad 
whose sons were in complete rebellion. I felt like a failure. And then you start to question, as that evolves over the years, you start to just say, you know, this was everything I lived for. This was everything that was important to me and me and God. And it has completely gone down the drain. What am I to think about that? Like, how do I process that? And what I did is I just crawled into a shell. I just did not know how to process it. So I avoided the Bible. I stopped praying. I didn't want it because literally opening the Bible would almost, it felt like to me a flood of defeats hit me in my face. That's how it felt. And it's not right, but it's just, it's how it felt. So I just avoided it. And so in some ways, in this really odd flip, Having that background made it actually harder for me to process all of this. So I, you know, once the letters start to, to kind of become a thing between me and Lucas, ironically, one of the first breakthrough letters was on David and Bathsheba, one of the more salacious stories in the Bible <laughs> and kind of juicy stories, right? This mm-hmm. whole adultery thing and he takes her and she gets pregnant and it, this, Right. And that was the first letter where Lucas, like, he called me the next day after he got it. He was like, he was almost quiet in saying, man, that really, it touched me because it wasn't just David's mistake. It was David's recovery that I wrote him about in this kind of first person, crazy, weird way I did it. And it was that recovery that kind of like touched my soul. And and it was the first time I had opened my Bible in a long time. It was the first time I was excited about anything from the Bible. And I'm sitting here writing to his son in prison. So, you know, it was almost like it rebounded. My spiritual life rebounded to this hugely negative thing. And then when the letters came in, it kind of like rebounded back to this really cool, you know, I can recover like David. Lucas, maybe you can have a life again. And and keep in mind, this was early. Neither of us were thinking about anything positive about the future. He was, right, a man had died. He was in, you know, still going through the preliminary hearing, the sentencing, right? It was as dark as dark gets, but there was this little tiny ray of light for me and for him. So it was pretty cool. It, it is interesting. The older I get, the more I do read pieces of the Bible. And, and it's it's true how you can find something for almost every single situation of your life. Just when you thought it was a book to kind of incriminate you because it shows you how imperfect you are, it does the opposite. It shows you, oh, my gosh, the greatest people of, of all time went through similar things. So let's talk about the premise of your wonderful book, Letters to My Son in Prison, How a Father and Son Found Forgiveness for an Unforgivable Crime. The crime being, uh, tell us the basics of the background. Your son, Lucas, who had been a, a drug addict, a heroin addict, and found himself in a car after a five-day bender and and accidentally, but still nonetheless, mowing down someone who was riding a bike and killing him. Um Tell us a little bit from there how the story progresses through your letters and through throughout the entire book. Yeah, of course, a, a huge tragedy in my own city. Uh, a well-known uh, middle school teacher, very, very beloved. So it was, it was, it was nothing but tragedy. And so, yeah, there was that to deal with. And 
And then he, um, a preliminary hearing is where the judge determines whether a trial's warranted. Is there enough question here to even, and it wasn't, it was just open and closed. So, you know, he was sentenced to 10 years in prison and in California. And like I said, I, you know, for, for months it was, um, it was very sketchy. He and I, we would talk. I did visit him once, uh, a couple, a couple times in, in jail. One really moving time when he completely broke down and, and became, um, just humble for really the first time in 15 years. And, and it was a beautiful moment between a father and son, but really early. And so still too raw for it to even feel like anything. But yeah, so I started writing him and he wrote back and then I wrote, but it was mostly me. It was, it was me for the first six, 12 months of, you know, mostly me writing. I mean, he'd write back. He, he still, I mean, you can imagine he's 28. There's huge tragedies happened. He hasn't found his legs yet. He, he, he's been lost in heroin for so long. And, and, you know, they say with drug, drug addiction, you kind of stop maturing from the time you start using. So in some ways, you know, he was a, a teenager still because mm-hmm. of how, how he had used uh, substances. So, but nonetheless, he started to come out of that cloud and it was, it was amazing to see me helping him. Of course, like I said, it helped me, but it helped him. And then we started, he went to a place. So he was at LA County prison or jail. It's called jail for six months. And then at a place called reception for six months and in reception, he discovered reading again, discovered a James Patterson book. And so immersed in that. And I could see, I could actually tell from his letters, everything started to change his vocabulary, his writing. Then he went to prison. Um, and there was a library. He became a light, you know, he worked in the library and then just started to read, uh, some very dense stuff. Dostoevsky, Steinbeck, Vonnegut, um, you know, some really deep stuff that, I mean, immersion, talking hours a day of, of complete immersion in these books about a second chance and about your life, his life. And so, yeah, it was, it was this evolution that, that, that became a very nuanced, um, complex spiritual conversation between us. So it was really, I mean, as a dad, of course, you know, you can imagine, I'm just after sometimes driving out to the prison and, and, and at the prison, there was, you know, open air um, visiting where we could actually touch each other and hug and all that. You know, we'd visit for hours and and I would just drive home thinking, oh, wait, wait a second. Is this actually going to happen? Is this actually going to have a good ending? Not a good ending, obviously, for, you know, for the, the widow that was made and the man that died. And that, you know, constantly haunts us. But but certainly for us, finding redemption Finding forgiveness, that did happen. Mm-hmm. And um, so you could sort of see your your son coming back alive through this situation. At the beginning, when um, he, he was ve- first taken to jail and you and your wife had an option as to whether or not you would bail him out, and you had come to the conclusion, I, I guess after so many years of going through so much with his drug addiction, it became clear to you that that would not be what you would do this time. And do you look back on that now and do you say that truly was the right thing to do 
um, at the time, it must have been heart wrenching for you. I cannot, and I know for him, the way he describes is what it did to him. But do, looking back now, do you do you give yourself a little bit of a break and seeing that you did the best that you could under the circumstances, and would you do it the same again? Absolutely, not even a question. And yes, I give myself a break. I mean, Laura, we were despondent. We we were at the end of our rope, whether it was right or wrong. In fact, I had some friends really judge me for it. But to be honest, Laura, I, I was like, I don't care. You you can think I'm the devil. If you think I'm bailing my son out, you're well, like, we just can't do it. I don't know if you've ever been to the end of, of your rope where you, I mean, you don't even care about what's right. You only know what you can handle and what you cannot handle. And we could not even forget doing it. We couldn't even conceive of it. And mm-hmm. I, again, I don't know how you feel about it, but I'm just saying it was, it's all we could do. It's all we could do. Absolutely. And that's the most beautiful thing. This book is so rife with this incredible raw emotion that you are doing so aptly now with your words and your writing is, is equally beautiful in so many ways. And and how these are letters. Um, do you still write to each other? Where are you at this point in the game? How many years ago was that? And where are you now? And um, do you see how the writing to each other was actually a, a healing, a healing thing? It, it was incredibly healing. Uh, Lucas got out in three years because California has a has too many prisoners. So for nonviolent crimes, which his was, it was violent, but it was nonviolent because it was not purposeful. That for nonviolent cr- crimes, they they have a milestone program where you can reduce ten to to seven to five to you know four to. You go to college classes, you go to AA programs, you go to church, you go to your re. You know what I mean? They have all these programs. So anyway, he whittled his sentence down to three. So he got out in 2019. He went in in 2016, got out in 19. He is now married, married a wonderful gal uh, who actually we knew for many years, uh, her whole life. Um, he has a son, a little toe-headed son now. Um, so his life has really come back together. He had a job within three days after prison. Not, not you know, and, and, and we're super close. He... He and I, I just gave him just a couple of days ago, I gave him this Father's Day letter he wrote me in 2018. He sent me the longest text. I mean, I'll read it to you right now if you want. No, I'm just kidding. I, oh. <laughs> I mean, I can. I mean, it was like... Um, read us a piece of it, sure. Yeah, I mean, it, it was really a moving text. I, I just, he goes, uh, wow, that letter. I read it on my bed last night when I got home. Brought me back to that moment and t- and the time I wrote it. I will never forget. If I don't write you, then nobody else does, which I didn't even understand that sentence. He says, damn, it was it was really something being in there. I'm glad we shared that time together, Dad. I was able to express things I would have never been able to say. To, to say. Thank God for that time away from everything. It helped me get straight, you know, so I mean, yeah, it changed his life, you know, and it. And obviously it it has in in so many ways. Um, Was there ever forgiveness on the part of the widow of the gentleman that that died as a result of the the car accident with your son? 
The short answer is no. Only okay. The short answer is no. And as you know from the book, I I fall over myself as does Lucas to acknowledge and to respect and to appreciate the tragedy on that side. He wrote many letters to her. He uh, he apologized so many times. He's rebuilt his life. We don't. We uh, a day doesn't go by where he and I and and Joyce, my wife, don't think about the widow and think about the man who was deceased. So I'll say that. Is it mine and Lucas's dream in our life that one day Valerie forgives us? I I mean I can't think of any one thing in this world I would love more. I I don't need it. In other words, my life isn't going to be incomplete. Because as you know, forgiveness from, from, if I offended you, I can't begrudge you for not for, forgiving me, right? I can't judge you, right? Right. It's, it's you. That's you. I, I can control what I can control. Would I dream that she forgives us? Lucas, yes. But, and we've written letters. So, I mean, that's a hope one day. Yes. And um, in terms of, complete and full redemption is it something that you need to work on every day and that lucas needs to work on every day or is it apparent that he is a new man uh, a great question and, and this may sound as both of us make us both sound very hard-hearted <laughs> callous i i guess I, we just feel we feel forgiven spiritually from god Mm-hmm. And in life, right? Society said you got to do X. He did X. He is moving on with his life. He is doing everything he can to live a life worthy of a second chance, as as I am, even you know, as a father, as and, and even with all my sons, I, we, I experienced great challenges with all of them. So we're living a redeemed life. Maybe that's a good way to put it. And trying to make, you know, live a life worthy of the second chance that we feel like we've all been given. Mm -hmm. I think that's what people can glean from this book. Maybe they haven't gone through anything exactly the same or even remotely similar. But the process from the inception of, well, actually, you had many years of dealing with with Lucas, but it didn't just start at the accident. It was many years before that. Prior to that, I think people will be will glean a, a lot of of healing for themselves and their own situations through just watching the process and the progression through the letters and um, through where you've both come to now and your family stronger than ever. Life is not. <laughs> It, it, sh- it certainly isn't what we think it's going to be, maybe, or pray it's going to be, or hope it's going to be. Sometimes it's better, sometimes it's harder, and sometimes we're just flabbergasted by, is is this really our lives? Did this really happen to us, or did we create this? Um, yet, it's real, and I think anybody is going to garner some some sense that there is redemption, there is hope, there is for sure um, ways to con- continually evolve and and live a life of purpose and fulfillment of dreams 
um, while also taking accountability for all that is, that has happened in each one's lives. But you lay it out in the most humble and beautiful of ways. I'm so grateful. I know you have so many talents, you know, in all different worlds besides, uh, obviously you counseled for many years as pastor, but this book is going to serve what I think is a high calling because Ken Gaydros, I just, you know, in listening to you and in hearing you, I just get a deep sense of abiding faith that um, through the worst of things can come the, the greatest light. So thank you for uh, bearing your soul, for bearing these beautiful letters, the relationship and every detail so real and so raw that people can find hope for and a guidebook for their own lives. Ken Guidros's book is called Letters to My Son in Prison, How a Father and Son Found Forgiveness for an Unforgivable Crime. You can find it everywhere now because it just dropped in September. And I have a feeling you'll be speaking about this book, you know, around the country. I'm, there's going to be a lot of people that are going to want to hear you. And in person, I'm, I feel very honored that, that you came on the program today. It's just something I think that everybody from every walk of life can get something from. So I thank you for, for doing this and putting yourself out there. God bless you. And thank you. And to your entire family, you've, you've all uh, worked through a lot and um, were the richer for it. So thank you. You are very welcome. And thank you for having me on. This has been a blast. Okay. And I know you have a website, your name. And for those uh, who d- no, don't know how to spell it, I'll help you out here. Ken Guidros, which is G-U-I-D-R-O-Z, KenGuidros.com. You can find everything there, plus a newsletter from Ken and uh, just so much. You'll get a lot out of it. Thank you, Ken. What a pleasure to meet you and know you now. Thank you. You're listening to The Way Home. We'll be right back. Welcome back. You're listening to The Way Home with Laura Smith. Here's Laura. Giving Tuesday is just two days away, and it sort of kicks off what uh, a lot of us find ourselves doing at this time of the year, and that's in uh, either donating our time or donating money to a cause that is near and dear to our heart, and for good reason, because um, a lot of these uh, non- nonprofit organizations truly need the boost and the commitment from the communities to stay afloat and to really get the work done that they need to. Candace Jones is with me today. She's the CEO and president of Public Welfare Foundation. And this is a great organization that I'm learning about. I'm so happy to have you, Candace, to tell us about it, especially when it comes to uh, the particular topic of helping uh, employ people with uh, incarcerated pasts. I had a guest on my show today who was talking about uh, his son who's in prison. A lot of people who go through this, ah. this is something that really, truly um, yeah. need support from the community. And you know all about this. Please tell us all about it. Oh, Lord, thank you so much for having me. And thank you for having that prior speaker on just to educate everyone. It's a really important issue. Public Welfare Foundation is an organization that exists to give resources to other organizations that do good work. We give grants and we specifically focus on giving resources to organizations that do youth and adult criminal justice reform. And right now we're doing a campaign rolling up to Giving Tuesday to really educate individuals about organizations all over the country that are doing good work. 
I see. And the idea of um, helping formerly incarcerated people get back into the workforce and, and young people, especially too. How did this come about and why is this something that, that you're focusing on and that's important to you? So much of our work is about working with organizations in the sites that we work in. We work in Washington, D.C., and Georgia, Mississippi, Louisiana, Oklahoma, Colorado, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, Michigan, and soon to be we'll announce some work in Tennessee. We work with them on organizations that do all kind of work in and around criminal justice reform, but we specifically also try to target organizations that both are led by formerly incarcerated people because they have some of the best ideas about how to intervene and really create the kind of programs and services that keep people out of the system. We also have a real preference for organizations that are intentional about hiring and making sure that formerly incarcerated people, adults and youth alike, are part of the conversation on the change we need to see in the system writ large. We really believe that you can advance this work in a meaningful way without bringing those individuals along and having them be a part of the leadership of that change. Do you find that there are a lot of formerly incarcerated um, people and youth that are ready once they um, do get out of prison? Are they ready to join the workforce? Do they have um, the ability to integrate back into society or they must really also need some guidance as well? Um, tell us a little bit of your personal story that got you involved. I've been doing this work my entire career. You know, I grew up in Chicago. I grew up on the west side of Chicago in a community that was really hit hard uh, by crime and violence, the criminal justice system. I had loved ones that I saw that were caught up in the system and incarcerated and really spent large chunks of their lives trying to redeem themselves, trying to feel like they were more than the worst thing that they have ever done. So I have been a longtime advocate. I went to law school. I wanted to be able to understand understand how to sort of fight the system, how to protect people that I love, and really evolve really quickly from direct representation into policy work and then systems work. I ran a youth prison system in the state of Illinois and got a front row seat on how the system responds to people who are um, sort of you know, caught up in the legal system. And I just think it's so important over the course of my career. I've learned a lot of lessons about what work and what doesn't. And I'm going to spend the balance of my career really advocating for those things that I know work and programming services in communities that really can support people to reenter. To your question on whether folks are ready, a lot of people are ready. There's great research that supports the capacity of giving returning citizens a job and the impact it can have long-term on recidivism. And there are going to be some different services and support needs, but good systems responses, you know, a system that is supporting people to reenter will be distinguished by whether or not they have the type of services in place to make individuals successful. Absolutely. And um, do you find that there are employers that are really willing to step up and um, invite these people into their sphere? Um, but or do they need coaching on how to do this? I would imagine that it's it's a learning curve for everybody. Um, yeah. How do they prepare themselves to be able to uh, have these people join their communities and their companies? I think that there are probably more employers than there used to be. Ten years ago, I think it would have been very difficult. But I think we still have a long way to go. Many individuals still um, 
respond singularly to the stigma. One of the organizations that we're highlighting in our Give Local campaign is an organization called Operation Restoration. It's run by Sarita Stye Barton. She's a New Orleans-based advocate. She herself was formerly incarcerated, left incarceration, applied for college, checked the box that she was formerly incarcerated and was denied entry. She reapplied, didn't check the box, and was admitted and spent the rest of her, you know, the balance of her career saying she was going to advocate to allow returning citizens to get access to an education post-release. And she was able to get that law changed in the state of Louisiana and has done a ton of national advocacy. But I think I il- I show that to illustrate that there are a lot of ways where we still create barriers and tripwires to people who are returning so that they don't have all the support they need or they're as enough employers are willing to take a look at somebody and give them a chance as we would want when we know there's good evidence that these individuals makes incredibly loyal, hardworking employees and not just hiring them when organizations like mine are willing to give grants to formerly incarcerated leaders. They can launch their ideas and create their own visions and organizations like the one that Sarita runs that go on to do incredible work on behalf of other individuals individuals. That's wonderful. And you said you're from Chicago. We're in northern Indiana, not far from Chicago. Are there? Oh, uh, I love that. That's my <laughs> hometown. Oh, really? Oh, good. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Chicago is my hometown, but I count northern Indiana as the same stomping ground. I would go there all the time, you know, for shopping. Uh-oh. And it's just sort of one big neighborhood if you're in that region. Yes, it truly is. I just moved back here three years ago to the Elkhart South Bend area. And oh, yes. Yes. I love that. It's good. It's also like good southern Lake Michigan country. It's just oh, it is. I love yeah. that area of the world. It's so beautiful. It is so beautiful. The people here are really I find them to be a unique people. I lived 40 yeah. years in, in New York. But I what I really love around this area are the the people here who have a heart for helping uh, and giving a hand up to people, giving really people chances. So I, you know, I'm looking for ways in the community to bring forth different organizations that are helping. Is there anywhere that you can recommend um, that we would look to maybe help uh, different organizations that are doing this type of work that are helping um, formerly incarcerated people or, you know, working with youth in the justice system? Absolutely. If folks check out our uh, website at givelocal.us, they can learn about the organizations in our site all over the country and be able to give and support those organizations, specifically if organizations are in the Chicagoland, uh, northern Indiana area. They're incredible organizations doing great work. A couple that I'll point out is just Story Catchers is a great organization that goes into youth prisons in the state of Illinois. They work with youth to be able to to tell their stories and then put those plays on. Folks can go learn about that organization, volunteer. They can go hear the stories of youth from their own, in their own words, from their own mouths. It's incredibly powerful. And of course, they can also give. Um, there are other organizations in the state of Illinois. One I'll just name is also Chicago Credit, which does work with high-risk individuals who are at risk of a gun violence. And they do incredible work in and around the city. And they do it in the far south side, which would be a short trip for somebody from northern Indiana if they wanted to get involved and learn more. That organization is uh, run by the former um, U.S. uh, Department of Education Secretary Arnie Dunn. 
Duncan. And I think either one of those organizations, if you're in that area, are ones to look at and learn more about. That's wonderful. So again, the the website again to go to is GiveLocal.us if they want to learn more. And if they want to learn more generally, because we always have different work going on, they can follow us at publicwelfare.org or at publicwelfare on any of the social media handles. Such good work you do. God's work. Candace Jones, CEO, President of Public Welfare Foundation. Thank you so much for really Thank you. Yes, doing the work that is you know, we all talk about, oh, if this could only be done or that could be done, you're doing it. And so thank you so much. And God bless you in the holidays and beyond. Thank you, Laura. Have a good holiday. You as well. You're listening to The Way Home with Laura Smith. Once again, here's Laura. This year is going to be unique for me in one way. I've always wanted to volunteer somehow, some way during the holidays And thankfully for my local chapter of the Salvation Army, I get to do it not once, but twice. I'm helping serve the Thanksgiving meal um, in our local office right down on Main Street in Elkhart, Indiana. And I'm also going to be ringing the bells with my whole my whole company uh, for the Red Kettle campaign. So who better to have on to really bring the call to everyone listening right now that They are looking for volunteers, and the Salvation Army's Red Kettle Campaign is alive and well and ready to take on the world. Ken Hodder, thank you so much for being here. You are the commissioner of the Salvation Army's uh, service, and you the the national commander. Wow, that is really impressive. I'm grateful. The, The man I'm working with is someone I met in the sixth grade, and he got me in to start helping this year for the first time. And I I just, I'm so excited because I I love the Salvation Army and everything it stands for. So thank you for joining us today. Oh, Laura, I have looked forward to this. Thank you for this opportunity. And thank you for what you're doing this holiday season. You are really setting the bar high for all of your listeners. And I hope they respond because I know you're going to enjoy it, and I know that everyone who does it will have a great time helping others in their own community. Well, my friend Ron, uh, who works here at our chapter, said that, you know, it, between the pandemic and a couple other uh, factors, the Red Kettle campaign, pan, excuse me, the Red Kettle campaign was down um, a little bit lower than it normally was in terms of the intake of money. So yeah. um, he really, he made... Uh, a, a great ask and said came on the radio station and and talked about how they're doing everything that they can to make this easier and to bring the red kettles up into the 21st century and i love all the different ways that people are able to donate now we're going to be ringing the bells there but there's going to be a whole bunch of ways for people to fill those kettles will you tell us about some of the latest developments Oh, absolutely. When people go buy a Salvation Army kettle, they can not only put a couple of dollars in or a little change that they might have in their pocket, but they can also look up and they can use the sign because the sign will allow them to give via Apple Pay and Google Pay and PayPal and Venmo. And they can go online, of course, and donate online. We also accept cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin, Ethereum. They can even text the word kettles to 51555. In other words, 
all of the venue of the mediums through which people can transfer money these days are now available so that people can have that sense of contribution and that satisfaction of knowing they made a difference by giving to the Salvation Army. I mean, that is really incredible. I mean, cryptocurrency, it's <laughs> yes. fantastic because, I mean, just imagine exponentially the money that's going to be able to come in this year because you've made it easy. You've met the 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 donator, the giver, right where they are. A lot of people don't walk around you know, carrying a bunch of loose dollar bills or even their yes. change that's in the jar at home. You know, so all these different ways of getting there is just an incredible idea. Now, I know that obviously the the push for the red kettles is during, you know, Christmas time, holidays, right after Thanksgiving and so forth. But I know that the money actually goes to programs that last all year long, correct? That is absolutely true. And those will be programs in their own community. Laura, the money that's given at the Kettles always stays local. So the programs that are of most critical importance to a community, that's what the Salvation Army is going to do. And we'll use local resources to do it. That's fabulous. So and we're talking Give me some ideas of everywhere the money goes. We're obviously food, you know, oh, yes. Thanksgiving dinner. Yes. But I know that, that you help with a lot of other things as well that maybe people don't understand. Oh, absolutely. The Salvation Army has a very simple mission statement. And that mission statement is to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and meet human needs in his name without discrimination. So we are not a single purpose organization. We will do anything that a community needs to have done. So that means that the Salvation Army is involved in food and in shelter and in rent assistance and in utility assistance and in youth programs and in senior programs. And we have domestic violence centers. We have drug and alcohol rehabilitation facilities. Anything that a Salvation Army becomes aware of in a community, we want to do that. We're doing workforce programs. Uh, we're doing uh, uh, transportation assistance. We're doing everything possible to make sure that when someone comes to us and says, I need a hand, I need some assistance, that we can do it. Because uh, our desire is to see everyone recognize that they're loved and cared for, that they are uh, of value, that they can make a contribution. So all of that leads us to do whatever it takes. It's really mind-boggling. I didn't even realize the scope of all the help that you give and offer. Now, are the, most of the people who work at the Salvation Army, are they on staff or or is it a mixture of staff and volunteers? Oh, it's a, it's a big mixture, uh, Laura. Uh, there are about, I would say, 5,000 Salvation Army officers who would be considered the clergy of the Salvation Army as a Protestant denomination. There are about 150,000 soldiers. They would wear the blue epaulets. But we also have about 65,000 employees. But those numbers pale by comparison to our volunteers. We have about 3 million volunteers who help the Salvation Army achieve its goals every year. Without them, we would truly be unable to achieve all the results that we do. I love uh, the story behind it. It Can you give us the real uh, sort of one-minute version of how the Salvation Army came to be and when it was? And then I'd like to hear a little bit about your involvement, too. 
Sure. The Salvation Army was founded in 1865 by William and Catherine Booth, who sought to take the gospel to the men and women who lived in the uh, terrible conditions of late Victorian England in the east end of London, where poverty was so severe. But they knew that people would not be able to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ when they were hungry and they were thirsty and they had no place to live. So from the very beginning, we have sought to do both. We have sought to alleviate human suffering as an expression of God's love for every man, woman, and child. Oh, that's really beautiful and touching. And it's it's even, I wonder if they had a vision for what it would turn into and how ubiquitous the Salvation Army would be and all the amazing work that it's doing. But it truly, obviously, it sounds like, you know, it's God-led as you were too, apparently graduating from Harvard College and Harvard Law School, and you were in corporate real estate and all those highfalutin, exciting things in in Los Angeles before apparently hearing God's call on your life. Yes, indeed. Yes. How was that? Well, it's funny you should ask that question. I I had just received a very large bonus. Uh, I had been told that I was doing good work. But I went back to my office, Laura, and I looked at the piles of paper that represented all the transactions in which I was involved in. And at that moment, I realized it would never be enough, that that God had something else in store for me. So I knelt at my desk, and the Lord called me back to my roots and called me uh, out of the active practice of law into the work of the Salvation Army. And as he always does, God has used that in ways I never would have imagined. I've had the opportunity over the course of my career to help establish the Salvation Army legally uh, in far-flung corners of the world, in Nepal and the UAE and in Namibia and the DRC, places I never would have thought of and uh, never even visited but uh, the Lord has taken all of that and used it in wonderful ways. So, frankly, if uh, they, if the army would let me, I'd start all over again uh, at the very beginning and uh, have another career because I've loved every minute. Oh, that's really very beautiful. I think you you have a good book in you. How exciting! <laughs> Seriously. Commissioner Kenneth Hutter, who is the National Commander of the Salvation Army, which is the largest social services organization in the United States, almost 7,000 centers. I am so grateful that I'm going to finally be able to do something um, I've been wanting to for so many years. But I, I know there's one other way that people can donate. And this is really easy just by texting the word kettles. When that's with an S on the end, kettles to 51555. And also by going to your website, give.salvationarmyusa.org. That's another way. Kenneth Hodder, thank you so very much for joining us today. I wish you nothing but the most uh, abundant of seasons. Thank you so much, Laura. And I also want to thank Ron for recruiting you. You'll have a ball and a very Merry Christmas to you. I'm so grateful. Thank you. Bye now. Bye-bye. You're listening to The Way Home. We'll be right back. Welcome back. You're listening to The Way Home with Laura Smith. Here's Laura. Well, after all of that inspiration and upliftment from um, some very important guests today, 
I turned to my guru of good news for a beautiful story that you've gone out and found for on our behalf uh, to help us feel better. Going into the work week, what is it, Jim? Well, I'm going to tell you the story about a 16-year-old high school student in Wheaton, Iowa. That's in eastern Iowa, who is, you might say, making a difference in the community. And she's an aspiring farmer. And I'll tell you what that's all about. Her name is Lauren Schrader. And she's a sophomore, a high school student in Wheaton, Iowa. And she was at a food drive about three years ago at the height of the COVID pandemic, when she noticed something that was missing in the community. You know what that is? There was a lack of produce for those in need. There was enough to go around for everybody else, but not enough for those in need. So she decided, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take this matter into my own hands. She's a member, by the way, of the Future Farmers of America, the local Mm -hmm. uh, organization. That's a national chapter over there. Anyway, so she decided to do something on her own with the help of her family and a donation from the FFA, the Future Farmers of America. They used a portion of the home for like a half an acre so she can grow her own produce. A half an acre on their own farmland, which the family owns. She supported it. And the Foundation, of course, gave her a nice, generous donation. She ended up growing about 20 different types of produce to donate to people in need. 20 types, like your tomatoes, your potatoes, broccoli, zucchini, even fresh herbs. I mean, i just trying to envision what this all looks like. This was a two-year quest that she was going to do, and it took about two years to do in the midst of all of her commitments, like summer softball season, etc. You know, she ended up donating, amazingly, 7,000 pounds of fresh produce to Nonprofit organizations in the community. So not only do they have produce for the holiday season, but really all year round. But it doesn't stop there, LJ, because she's thinking two years, two steps ahead. Lauren is doing that. She says two years from now, when I graduate from high school in 2025, she hopes to eventually donate 20,000 pounds of fresh produce for those in need. And maybe someday uh, she might very well own her own family farm like her uh, her, her parents do. Uh, I mean, she, again, just really good for her. She's a third of the way there. We wish her well. And, and just a wonderful thing she's doing, making it better for everybody in the community, especially those that are in need. I, you know, I'm just trying to remember what I was doing in the 10th grade, <laughs> and it wasn't anything even remotely as impactful and amazing as that. This young lady has taken it upon herself. God bless her. Lauren Schrader, thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed once again your Thanksgiving weekend as we go into now what is officially holidays with uh, Hanukkah and Christmas coming up and New Year's as well. It really is a beautiful time of the year. Sending you lots of love from the way home, and we'll see you next time. I'm Laura Smith.